morning, church. All right, we're going to start today not with a reference to an early 2000s movie about knights or anything like that. We're going to start by jumping right into the Word. Stand with me as we read Matthew chapter 3, verses 13 through 17. Matthew chapter 3, verses 13 through 17. This is the Word of the Lord. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have, been, would have prevented him saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, let it be so now, <clears throat> for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Let's pray as you're seated. Lord, we're excited this morning to open your word together. We pray once more that you would fill our minds with the things that you want us to know. Conform our lives around your word. Help us to live out what you've called us to live out from this passage. Lord, we trust you. We thank you. We thank you for your wonderful grace to us. In Jesus' name, amen. Last week, we were introduced to the interesting, eccentric character of John the Baptist, dressed weirdly, coming from the wilderness. <clears throat> As you'll recall, he was the last of the old covenant prophets, the second Elijah, foretold by Malachi. He was the herald to Christ the King. His mission was to prepare the people of Israel for that king by proclaiming his coming kingdom, the kingdom of heaven. And he readied them by calling them to repent, repentance and by baptizing them as a sign of that repentance and a changed heart. But John recognized that someone mightier and greater was coming, that king, the great one. He calls him the mightier one. And this mightier one would baptize people also, but he'd baptize them with the Holy Spirit and with fire. And this was Jesus, if you'll recall. The mightier one, the stronger one was Jesus. And he gives believers the Holy Spirit. And he will judge the world when he returns. Baptism by fire. And in our text today, the king is back on the scene. The last time we saw Jesus, he was still a little child returning back home to Nazareth. And now Jesus is an adult. And he's about to embark on his ministry and in the truest sense, the baptism of Jesus Christ is his entrance into that ministry. It's the very start. It's the beginning. <clears throat> the five verses before us are pretty simple. They just tell us a story, right? Jesus leaves his home from Galilee. That's where Nazareth is in the north in Israel. And he travels south to the Jordan to John in order to be baptized. That's where John's baptizing, if you'll remember, in the region of Judea. He approaches John in order to be baptized, but John is hesitant. He views himself as unworthy to baptize Jesus. In fact, he, he seems to desire Jesus to baptize him, but Jesus says that John needs to baptize Jesus in order to fulfill all righteousness. That's the only reason Jesus gives. 
So John consents. He's persuaded. And then something happens. It's Jesus coming out of the water. The heavens open. The spirit descends like a dove. And the voice of the Father is proclaimed from heaven. And it says, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. It's a short but striking scene. I would have loved to see this myself. Anybody here agree with me that this would have been really cool to witness? I'm really hoping that in heaven we'll have access to video replay of some of this stuff, like the baptism of Jesus. Uh, Another one for me would be the transfiguration. I think that would be wild to see too, or uh, the resurrection itself. I mean, I'm sure you all have ideas of things that you would like to see. And, you know, I'm I'm sure that that's kind of... uh, unimportant to us when we're there in the moment looking at the most magnificent thing right in front of us, God himself. We won't necessarily need video replay of past events. But in any case, for now, we'll have to stick with our imaginations. Okay, so I'm going to invite you to do that, to imagine what's happening in the waters of the Jordan River with Jesus and John the Baptist. Matthew does a great job of painting us a picture it's important to, to take it in, right? It's a, it's a wonderful scene. Okay, so use your imagination. We can almost hear the water splashing as Jesus rises out of it. We can almost see the figure of the Spirit take, taken in the form of a dove descending from heaven. And we can almost hear the booming voice out of heaven proclaiming the pleasure of the Son. It's, it's a wonderful scene, right? Do you you see these things and hear them and smell them? Some people have better imaginations than others, so don't be discouraged. But there's something something nagging at the back of my mind through all of this. As wonderful of a scene as it is, and as much as I want to see it, there's something nagging at me through the whole thing. And maybe it's nagging at you too. It's just kind of there in the background. We kind of try to ignore it. It's a big question. Why did Jesus need to be baptized? Why is he there? Isn't John's baptism supposed to be all about repentance? Jesus was perfect, right? So why is he being baptized? What does he have to repent repent for? Why is Jesus submitting himself to baptism? I think that's one of the main questions that this text asks, and one that I have about the text too. There are five reasons, five really good reasons why Jesus submitted himself to baptism. First, Jesus always obeys the Father. The simplest answer to the question is the least satisfying. In short, Jesus got baptized because the Father wanted him to. And Jesus always obeys the Father. Look at verse 14 again. John says to Jesus, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? Right, John's flabbergasted that Jesus is walking into the Jordan River, approaching him. He knows who Jesus is. John is aware of who Jesus is. In the Gospel of John, John points to Jesus and calls him the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus, John knows who Jesus is. 
His words even point to what we discussed last week. He's saying that Jesus doesn't need water baptism. In fact, John seems to ask Jesus for the baptism that he has, the baptism of the Holy Spirit. I need to be baptized by you, something greater. He knows that Jesus is perfect and in no need of baptism of repentance. And so he asks Jesus, in the humblest way possible, what he's doing. He says, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? Yes, John feels unworthy. That's pretty clear here. And he's right to feel unworthy. He is, because he's aware of Jesus' sinlessness. But the way Jesus answers him is so simple, so devoid of explanation, it leaves us wanting more. He says, let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. I like how the New Living Translation renders Jesus' answer. It says, it should be done, for we must carry out all that God requires. God required that Jesus be baptized, and he required that John do the baptism. Let it be so, Jesus says. We could say it like this. The obvious, formal answer on the face of it for why Jesus needed to be baptized is simply obedience. Why does Jesus need to be baptized? Because the Father wanted him to. But that's deeply unsatisfying for us. It's worth asking why. We want a bunch of different reasons why Jesus needed to be baptized. We want a better explanation. And take a look at your bulletin. I'm going to give you four more. So don't worry. But I'm bringing this reason up first because it's important that we deal with something in our hearts. We often are unsatisfied with bare obedience to the will of God. We want an explanation. We want all the good reasons why God would want us to do something. We think we're owed an explanation. We think we're owed reasons. For instance, when we read the story of Gideon, you guys familiar with Gideon? One of the greatest leaders of the armies of Israel. Gideon, we scoff at his early story and his unwillingness to believe God. Believe that God wants this timid individual to lead his army. Maybe you remember the specific story in Judges chapter 6 where Gideon really wants to make sure that God is calling him to do something he really doesn't want to do. He challenges God and asks for a sign. He says, God, if this is your will, please make the fleece that I lay out on my threshing floor wet with the morning dew and not the floor itself. An interesting sign to ask for. And in the morning, he gets up and he wrings out all the water out of the fleece and the threshing floor is dry. Okay, fair enough. Gideon wants a sign. Maybe he doesn't have as much faith as some other people. Fine. And we expect Gideon to move on to just now. He, the sign has been shown, an amazing, miraculous thing. Gideon, move on and do what God wants you to do. But it's not good enough for Gideon, right? He asks for another sign. Okay, Lord, if this really is your will, then please... Make the threshing floor wet with dew and the fleece dry the next morning. And we're frustrated with Gideon. We're shocked that he's unwilling to just obey. 
Because God's calling him. He's confronted with God himself. But come on. We do this all the time. This is our MO. What makes Jesus so amazing in this story is Jesus always obeys the Father without any need of explanation. At the beginning of his ministry, Jesus submits to the Father for baptism. That's the very beginning. At the end of his ministry, Jesus submits to the Father as he goes to the cross. His whole life is marked by obedience to God. Jesus says in John chapter 6, verse 38, I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Right? We, we ask this question all the time. Why does Jesus do that? We're going we're gonna to ask that several times through Matthew. And the formal reason will always be because the Father wanted him to. So we can't glance over that. God wanted him to be baptized. Jesus always obeys the Father because Jesus always reveals the Father. And that's not just a small point of theology. Jesus demonstrates the best possible way to live for us. As Jesus obeyed the Father, so should we. Now, there's a difference between us and Jesus, right? Jesus was God, and he knew what the Father was up to. We don't always get to enjoy that privilege in the moment. Fair enough. And on top of that, we are prone to sin and to doubt and unbelief. So for us, it takes a lot of faith to obey the Lord in every circumstance. That's true. But when we exercise the kind of faith that we're, we're quick to obey God, to obey his call and his direction, we, we won't ever regret it. If your natural inclination to God's call on your life is, okay, I'll do it, you won't regret it. Your life will be better for it. And it's the power of the Spirit through us in our life and sanctification to make us do that, to just obey the Lord. And so let me ask you maybe a personality question as you analyze yourself. Are you a skeptical person? <clears throat> when somebody tells you that something is true, do you tend to like, not believe them immediately until you have a bunch of proof? Or are, are you what the world calls gullible, right? What kind of person are you? We would never say Jesus is gullible as he obeys the Father, right? And here's, here's a prayer that we should all have. May the Lord, through the Spirit, influence our hearts and minds to say yes to God quickly. Amen? Jesus always obeys the Father. That is the big reason. The main reason. The official, general, in-your-face reason. Jesus always obeys the Father. We could end the sermon. But there are other special and specific reasons why Jesus submits to baptism. None greater than the first. All still very important. So, second. Jesus identifies with sinners. Jesus is not a sinner. He's never sinned. He never did sin. But in his baptism, he proclaims to the world that he identifies with them. He has nothing to repent of. 
but he shows us that he expects us to repent. He has no need of repentance, but his baptism points to people's need. Everybody needs to repent. Jesus represents his people here. Jesus exercises his office as priest in his baptism. Let's talk about Jesus' offices for a couple minutes, because through our time in the Gospel of Matthew, these offices will continually come up. Maybe you've heard of them, the threefold office of Christ. We've, we've talked about the first, that he's king, but Jesus is also prophet and priest. We've seen that Jesus is king. Matthew has been shoving that in our face from the beginning of this book. Jesus is king of kings, and his kingdom is coming soon. But Jesus is, is also the greatest of prophets, and he is the great high priest. Jesus exercises his office as prophet primarily in his teaching and his re-giving and reorientation of the law. Prophets were the mouthpiece of God, the ultimate representation of God to the people. That's what a prophet's function was. Jesus is that par excellence. We'll see him in this office in the Sermon on the Mount for weeks on end. As the great high priest... Jesus represents his people before the Lord. So prophet is from God downward. Priest is from down upward. He is the mediator between God and man. The mediator of a new covenant between God and his people. Jesus is always representing his people before God. 1 John says, we now have an advocate before the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Next week, we'll see in detail how Jesus represents the people of Israel in the wilderness. But this week, Jesus represents all people who come to him through faith in his baptism. As the great high priest, Jesus submits to baptism in order to identify with and represent his people. Isaiah 53 verse 12 says that the suffering servant was numbered with the transgressors. Was numbered with the transgressors. And that's what's happening in the baptism. That's true in Jesus' baptism. He himself submits to something that's for sinners. He was numbered among the transgressors. So what does that mean? What does that mean for us? If our Lord, sinless and perfect, submitted himself to baptism in order to identify with us who are deeply sinful, how much more so do we need to repent and submit ourselves to baptism. We should be willing to follow the Lord here. Baptism is one of the two ordinances given to the church along with communion. Jesus commands his apostles to make disciples and baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We had a baptism at the beginning of November. And it was awesome. But we can have another one. Anytime, we can plan one. If you need to be baptized, if you've been putting it off, let's get you baptized. It's not that big of a deal. Let's just do it. If you want to be baptized, and if you want to follow the Lord in his example, let the leadership of the church know. Let me know. Let an elder know that you want to be baptized. We'll do it. Don't put it off any longer. Baptism is not required for salvation. Let me make that clear. But baptism is commanded 
of all believers who are able to submit to it. And so if that's you, and you've not been baptized, and you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins, it's time. It's time to follow him. If Jesus is your Savior, do as he did. Because in his baptism, he identified with you. He says, I'm one of them. And in your baptism, you identify with him. And with everyone else who has also repented and received God's grace. Baptism is our sign of entrance into that new community of gathered believers who have collectively repented and claimed Jesus as king. In his baptism, Jesus identifies with sinners. Third, Jesus foretells of his death and resurrection. Romans chapter 6, verses 3 through 4 says this. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. When we were baptized, this is exactly what we were saying. We're saying that our old self, our sinful self, was killed with Christ, Christ on the cross and buried with him in the grave, and it's still there. And that we've received new life as he was raised from the grave. We point back to the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ when we're baptized. But when Jesus submits to baptism in Matthew chapter 3, he points forward to his death and resurrection, not backward. When Jesus is brought down under the water, he's telling everybody around that he's going to die. And when he's brought back up out of the water, he's telling everyone, I'm going to rise. Jesus' whole ministry from the very beginning was pointed to the cross of Calvary, where sin would be dealt with once and for all. And even in his baptism, the death of Christ is on display. We should see it very clearly here. Jesus is going to die. In a very real sense, Jesus was born to die. Born to be that sacrifice for sins. As Jesus obeys the Father in his baptism, we can already see that he's going to obey the Father and go to the cross. Baptism is a wonderful sign that we have been given in the church. As a picture, it can't be any clearer. The water is the grave. It's death. And when we're brought out of the water, we signify that we have new life. Maybe we should intentionally make the water colder in baptism to feel that. Symbols are a powerful thing. Baptism is a symbol. It's a sign. God has given us many wonderful symbols in the church. Physical symbols like baptism and written symbols. For instance, the church has been called the body of Christ. That's a symbol. Spend a moment thinking about that metaphor. The church is the body of Christ. Christ is the head of the body, we're told, which gives it power and life and movement and direction. We're members of that body, which give it action and actuality. We do the things Christ wants us to do. Each member of that body is important and necessary for the whole body to thrive. Wow, what a symbol, right? The church is the body of Christ. There's a lot there that's given to us as a gift. 
Communion is another wonderful symbol that we've been given, a physical symbol this time. We literally eat the bread and and the cup that represent the body and blood of Jesus. Declaring that we are intimately united with him in in the closest possible way. And we partake of it together. We do it together as a church, saying that we are together united to Christ. Again, powerful symbol. God's given us these wonderful metaphors and symbols to give us an understanding of what's actually happening. And baptism is one of those mysterious, wonderful symbols. For Jesus himself to submit to baptism is incredibly powerful. To to take on this symbol for himself. We have to understand point number two and point number three together. Jesus identifies with sinners in his baptism, in his baptism, and proclaims his death and resurrection in his baptism. When he goes into the water, he's proclaiming his willingness to die for you. He's saying, these are my people. I'll pay the price for their sins. I'll lay my life down for my sheep. That was at the very start of his ministry. Before he's healed anybody, before he's taught anything, Jesus points to the cross and says, I'm willing to go. He knew what he would have to do. And we should hear him saying to us individually, I'm willing to do it for you. Because he's identified with us in his baptism and he foretells of his death and resurrection. Jesus has paid the price for sins. He's taken on himself what Isaiah calls our iniquities, our uncleanness, the thing that separates us from God. And just as he was put under the water, Jesus was put into the grave. But just as he was brought out of the water, he was brought out of the grave. Praise the Lord. And now all who place their faith in Jesus Christ can find redemption and forgiveness of sins in him. So have you placed your faith in Jesus Christ? In his death and resurrection. He has told you in his baptism, I identify with you. And I went to the cross for you. So do you trust in Jesus Christ for your salvation? And did you know that all of the work has been done? It has been accomplished. The debt has been paid. Jesus obeys the Father. He identifies with sinners. He foretells of his death and resurrection. And fourth. The Holy Spirit anoints and empowers. In this scene, we see each member of the Trinity. The Father's voice is heard, the Son submits to baptism, and the Spirit descends. Jesus was not without the Spirit in his childhood. He's not receiving the Spirit for the first time here. So it's important to understand exactly what's going on. Primarily, The descent of the Spirit upon Christ fulfills a prophecy of Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 11, verses 1 through 2. Let me read that for you. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. That's Jesus, the shoot from the stump of Jesse. And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. The spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and fear of the Lord. So 
the, the, the branch from the stump of Jesse, Jesus, will have the Spirit descend upon him. Right? This is a prophecy about the coming King, the Messiah. Notice each of the things that the Spirit gives the King in this passage. Wisdom, understanding, counsel, might, knowledge, and fear. Fear of the Lord. All of these things a king would need to lead a nation. Remember, the prophecy is about the branch from the stump of Jesse, the line of David. It's a kingly Messiah prophecy. The Spirit anoints the, the branch from the stump of Jesse to be king. Some have taught various false teachings about the baptism of Jesus and the descent of the Spirit upon him. One false teaching from the early church was called adoptionism. And they taught that Jesus was just a man, Jesus of Nazareth. Nothing extra special about him. But with the anointing of the Holy Spirit at his baptism, he becomes Jesus Christ. But that's obviously false. Jesus was fully man and fully God, even from the womb. We've seen that over the last several weeks. That was the whole purpose of the virgin birth, to proclaim Jesus is God and man. So we know that the descent of the Spirit of God is not God merely declaring who once was a man, now his son. That's not what's happening here. It's not adoptionism. Another more recent false teaching says that Jesus was completely unable to do any of the miracles that he would do without the Spirit of God. And so at his baptism, the Holy Spirit enables him to do the work of his ministry in that way. That he gave up everything that it meant to be divine. And so he would need this, the power of the Spirit to pull off what God has called him to do. They teach essentially that Jesus was just a man, again, and that his in, at his incarnation he emptied himself of what it means to be God. But that's a misunderstanding of the incarnation. In Jesus, the fullness of deity dwells bodily. Jesus was still fully God in his incarnate state. And as God, he could do what God does. He could do miracles. So what does the Spirit do here? Why does the Spirit descend on Jesus? The Holy Spirit anoints Jesus as king and empowers him for his ministry. This is Jesus' kingly coronation, like when David was anointed with oil. Jesus would need the presence of the Spirit in his ministry. These things listed by Isaiah, wisdom, understanding, counsel, might, knowledge, and fear of the Lord. The Spirit would never leave Jesus. The Son was not left on his own. This is God saying that the Son has the power and authority to do everything he's going to do. So when the Spirit rests on Jesus like a dove, we should see God anointing Jesus as king, his coronation, and empowering him for what is to come with a stamp of approval and authority by the Spirit. And the good news for Christians is that the Holy Spirit has been sent to do this work of empowerment for us. Jesus promised that he would send the Spirit to us. Do you know that? He promised he would send us the Spirit in John 15 and in many other places. And he has. He has sent the Spirit. The Holy Spirit, God himself, rests upon, anoints, and indwells believers to do the work of ministry he's called you to do through faith. 
Just as the Spirit empowered Christ for ministry, the Spirit empowers you for yours. Let me say that again. Just as the Spirit empowered Christ for his ministry, the Spirit empowers you for yours. What's your ministry? And do you rely upon the Spirit for his power to accomplish it? He's given each of us something to do. And the Spirit will help us see that through. It's easy to forget that the Holy Spirit is in each one of us, indwelling us individually. But if we have any hope of obeying the Lord and what he's called us to do, we need the Spirit. We need him. We need his gifting. We need his love and peace. We need the the Holy Spirit daily to assure us and affirm us that we are children of God. We need the Spirit in his direction and insight and wisdom as he brings us to different people to declare the good news of Jesus Christ. We need the Spirit for so much, and we are so neglectful of him. We need to ask him every day to give us power to live, to give us the ability to do what God has called us to do, and the Holy Spirit will. That's a promise. And he will transform you throughout life, sanctifying you, getting rid of your sin, making you more like Christ. The presence of the Holy Spirit is a powerful and wonderful thing and a reason to worship God this morning. So do you know that the Spirit empowers you and has anointed you for the work of your ministry and has sealed you for the day of redemption? This is what's happening here. The Spirit empowers Christ to do his work and he anoints him as king. He empowers us to do ours. Fifth and finally, the Father affirms the Son. When Jesus was brought out of the water, the heavens opened, the Spirit descended, and a voice was heard. It said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. (coughs) In Mark's account of Jesus' baptism, the voice of the Father addresses Jesus. (coughs) Thursday, I was walking out of lunch, and a cold hit me like a freight train. Any of you ever have that happen? Oh my gosh. And I could barely, like, keep up with the snot running out of my face. (laughs) And I finally had a good night's sleep last night. Anyway, in Mark's account of Jesus' baptism, the voice of the Father addresses Jesus. And it gives the impression that Jesus is the only one who witnesses what's going on here. The heavens opening and the Spirit descending, hearing the voice. But in Matthew's account, the voice from heaven addresses the crowd. The voice addresses the crowd around Jesus. This is my beloved son. Instead of what Mark says, you are my beloved son. Matthew does this on purpose. He wants his audience to understand that God has given his full approval and affirmation of the ministry of Jesus. And he wants witnesses The Father is well pleased in the Son. He delights in the Son. Jesus never fails to obey the Father, and the Father is always pleased in the Son. That's 
their relationship. Jesus receives the stamp of approval. He'll move forward right into an extended time of temptation. And he'll do it with the knowledge that the Father loves him and delights in him. There are two final points of application for us, I think. First, just as the Father delights in the Son, do you? Do you delight in the Son? Does Jesus bring you joy? Are you pleased with Jesus Christ? When you think of him, are you happy? Nothing should delight us more than Jesus Christ. Nothing should delight us more than Jesus Christ. We should long for nothing else than his return and his culmination in history. We should be delighted at the thought that someday we will see Jesus face to face. Are you happy? Pleased with the Son? Do you have that kind of relationship with Jesus where you're comfortable saying, man, I love that guy. He brings me joy. His death and resurrection for our forgiveness should be a constant source of joy for every sinner. Amen? Do you delight in the Son? If the answer this morning to you today is, man, I don't think I've ever thought of it that way, and I'm not really sure I do. That's why we sing. That's why we come together and encourage one another. Jesus Christ is our reason for being. And if you find no joy in him, wake up. Wake up to the word that Jesus Christ was sent for you, that you can have a personal relationship with him that your life is now filled with wonder and an ability to have a true relationship with God because of one historical guy born into this world who died on a Roman cross. Does Jesus Christ delight you? He delights the Father. Second, do you know that because of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, every Christian has been adopted as sons and daughters of God. Let me say that one more time. It's the foundation of truth for what I'm going to say next. Do you know that the death, because of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, every Christian who believes in that has been adopted as a son and daughter of God. <clears throat> God delights in you. In you, the Father sees Jesus. If you, redeemed from former sins, dead in your trespasses and sins, but alive in Christ, if you, in you, he sees a wonderful creation and a dear child. Did you know the Father delights in you? That he loves you? The Father loves you. We may be tempted to think that the Father really is just like a judge and he's quick to be displeased. When we think of the person of the Trinity who probably gets angry the most, we think of the Father. We think that 
We have a good relationship with Jesus, the friend of sinners, but we're kind of scared of the dad because he sees everything that we do and, you know, he wants to punish us. But that's not true. God loves you. And his default abiding attitude toward you is delight. Because of Jesus Christ. How does that make you feel? Pretty good? Pretty good. It should. Because we were former enemies of God, Ephesians 2 tells us. Running away from him, aligning ourselves with Satan, dead in our sins. But God made us alive together with Christ. By grace we have been saved through faith. And because of Jesus Christ, God delights in you now as a son or daughter. Praise the Lord. Let's end there. Can we respond to him with a little worship? Telling him how we delight in him? Can we express that? Express our joy right now? Let's pray. Lord, you tell us that you are well pleased with your son. Praise the Lord because we love him. We know that we abide in him through the spirit. All those this morning who have placed their faith in Jesus Christ abide in him. And because we abide in him, you delight in us. And that overwhelms us because we understand that we are sinners and we don't deserve it. So Lord, first forgive us of our continued sin. Help us to live lives holy unto you with this knowledge constantly on our hearts and minds. And Lord, help us to delight in you. Help us to be overjoyed now that you would send your son for us. Give us your spirit. Lord, we love you. We thank you so much for your continued gifts. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.